The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. On May 19, 1975, a money order salesman named Harold Frank was leaving a Cleveland, Ohio convenience store when two men demanded his briefcase. When he resisted, they clubbed him in the head with a pipe, threw acid in his face, and fatally shot him twice in the chest. The store's co-owner, Ann Robinson, saw the whole thing go down and she suffered a bullet wound before the men sped off in a green car with $425. Then, a busload of schoolchildren were dropped off on the corner, and one local boy, Eddie Vernon, bragged to his friends that he had seen the murder and knew who did it. His neighbors, Ricky Jackson, and the Bridgman brothers, Wiley and Ronnie. The three young men were arrested, and young Eddie Vernon identified them at each one of their trials. All three juries found Eddie Vernon more credible than the wounded store owner, Ann Robinson. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. This case is, it's like a, it's like a glaring example of everything that can go wrong and that does go wrong in our criminal legal system. But uh, before I get off on a tangent here, because this case makes me so angry, I'm going to introduce our guests. We have with us today the man himself, Kwame Ajamu, formerly known as Ronnie Bridgman. Kwame served decades in prison for a crime he had nothing to do with, but he's here today, standing strong. Kwame, we're very honored to have you here on the show today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And with him is a man named Terry Gilbert. Terry is a renowned criminal defense and civil rights attorney, as well as a community activist, and importantly, he's a death penalty abolitionist. And I am absolutely thrilled and honored to have you here as well, Terry. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate it. 
Okay, so Kwame, I'm going to start with you. You were born Ronnie Bridgman and grew up with your brother Wiley, as well as your childhood friend and later co-defendant, Ricky Jackson, who's been on the show before. We'll have his episode linked in the bio. But anyway, I've invited you here to give your own unique side of this story. Let's go back to the beginning. You all grew up on the same block, same street, right? We did, yeah. Three houses apart. In Cuyahoga County, right? Yeah, Cuyahoga County. And people that listen to the show have heard so many cases from Cuyahoga County because it's arguably the epicenter of the whole wrongful conviction world, which is there's a lot of competition for that awful distinction. But tell us about Cuyahoga County. Where is it? What's it like? So Cuyahoga County is more affectionately known as Cleveland, Ohio. And that is the city within the jurisdiction of Cuyahoga County. Cleveland, Ohio is a uh, cesspool, if you will, with three different sides to it. All of those sides are policed very heavily, as Terry will let you know in a few when he talks. But I was born in 1957. So my youth in Cleveland was uh, through two riots, 67 and 68 riots, all infused by the poor, the disadvantaged, redlined people, people who had been segregated for so long and just was tired of being poor. The situation on the streets of Cleveland and the Black community were horrific in the 60s and the 70s, as it was across the country. And assassination of Martin Luther King, Robbie Kennedy, the so-called riots that were happening. In that context, there was a war against the black community. And we had a mayor in the city of Cleveland, the first African-American mayor in the country of a major city named Carl Stokes, who was elected during this period. And the police unions were not very happy about a black mayor who was attempting to come up with some reforms that would deal with the issues that were happening at the time in the Black community. But those reforms never took hold because of the resistance of the establishment, the police union, the political climate. The Cleveland police force was indeed a faction to deal with at that particular time. They were beyond corrupt. And as history will show, they're still corrupt to this day. And so I come up in that. You know, I come up in the aftermath of that, actually because I was 17 years old in 1975 when all this happened to me. So you're still really a kid. You're a teenager. And I'm sure you had dreams and aspirations like every other 17-year-old kid in the country. And I know Ricky Jackson and your brother Wiley had already both been through the military at this point. So what were your plans for the future? I tell people all the time that I want to be a cop. Wow. (laughs) I had big aspirations and, how do you say, ideologies of how police worked. And it was either going to be a cop or a fireman. And then, in 1975, on that terrible day, May 19th, 1975, Mr. Harold Franks entered our neighborhood there in Fairhill and Cedar and lost both his liberty and his life. And I became one of the suspects and then one of the accused and then one who was sentenced and convicted to die. At just 17 years old, I had no understanding of how these people who I supported as a child growing up and who I wanted to emulate could do such a thing to me. And this particular crime, 59-year-old white guy named Harold Franks, who was a money order salesman, and when he left the neighborhood grocery store on Fair Hill Road, he was confronted by two men demanding his briefcase. That's two, not three. 
When he resisted, they clubbed him in the head with a pipe and splashed acid in his face. One of the robbers then shot him twice in the chest and fired a shot through the glass front door of the store. Mr. Franks obviously died. And 58-year-old Ann Robinson, who was a co-owner of the store, was shot once in the neck but miraculously survived. And the two robbers fled with the briefcase. They got away with about $425. It's really sad when you think of that. So Life is so cheap. In this case, four lives were so cheap. The two robbers, they got into a green car, parked down the street, and escaped. Now, I'm going to ask a stupid question. Kwame, did any of you guys have a green car? No. My brother did own a black and white Plymouth Sabrine. They did find that green car. Somebody had it and everything in the yard, all that. Nothing came of it. And it sounds like a very organized type of a crime, like maybe even a professional criminal who knew that this money order guy was going to be there, threw acid in his face. What would a 17-year-old kid who wants to be a cop be doing with acid? And I mean, and a gun. In this case, let us not forget, this case wasn't a complicated one. They had the green car. They had suspects. They also had Mrs. Robinson, right? Didn't Mrs. Robinson know you guys? Beyond a shadow of a doubt, yeah. Right. So here it is. She's just been shot. And she's the only one who actually saw the perpetrators. And we know eyewitness identification is unreliable, but not when you know the people. Right. Right? So think about it. So why don't you fill the audience in on how these guys became the sole focus of these people who ultimately framed them for this crime? In addition to the climate that existed at the time, specifically what happened was a 12-year-old boy named Eddie Vernon who was on a bus coming home from school at the time the shooting occurred. The bus was in some proximity to the store down about a block away. And when they got off the bus and they saw the commotion after the shooting, they started talking and one kid says, well, I bet you I know who did it. And he referred to the nicknames of Ricky, Kwame, and and Wiley. So that stuck in this kid, Eddie Vernon's mind at 12 years old. Maybe he should tell the cops who he thinks might have done this horrific crime. Eddie Vernon, I've known him since he was a small kid. My brother went to school with one of his sisters, and we knew the family. Plus, he was a paper boy in the neighborhood. Anyway, on that particular day, May 19, 1975, myself and Ricky Jackson was just down the street at the other end of our street talking with a guy by the name of Lynn Garrett and his girlfriend. And we decided to walk around the corner to the store. Now, mind you, the store that we decided to go to is not the store in question of So in the way to the store, we stopped at, unbelievably, Edward Vernon's house. And his two sisters, Darlene and Susan, were sitting on the porch upstairs. And we began to, you know, shoot the shit, talking to him. And a car pulls up. Inside the car, of course, is their father, Eddie himself, and a young girl by the name of Rose Brown. So they open the window and tell us that, hey, it's a man up there at the store, shot. So boogity, boogity, boogie. We wait for the girls to come down, and we all go up to the store. And sure enough, Mr. Frank is laying on the ground, dead. Cops was everywhere, right? You know, uh, asking people who had seen this, who had seen that, had anybody seen it. Unbeknownst to any of us, young Edward Vernon you know, raised his hand and said, I did, I did, you know, to which they took him in immediately. At this point, they were only looking for two assailants, not three. So 
they took Edward down to the police station without his parents to get a statement that was more faithful to the crime scene. And remember, like Terry said, Edward's part in this just started off as, I bet you I know who did it. They went and started feeding him more details of the crime, creating a narrative to the point when they pushed him to say, well, these are the guys that you saw commit this murder, which we know now was impossible because other people on the bus we interviewed to show that there was no way Eddie could have seen this from that position. So they take the kid in. He's 12 years old. They scare him. They manipulate him to sign a a statement. And about a few days later, they brought him back and they wanted him to look at a lineup. And he's told the police, well, I don't really know if they did it or not. And one of the detectives got upset and started pounding his fist into a table and threatened Eddie that if he did not sign the document pointing to these young men, that they would arrest his parents. Of course, none of this was known back then. You know, later on, we would find out that his mother had ovarian cancer and was dying. And so, you know, you ask yourself, who would you choose? Guys in the neighborhood or your mother? You know, so he came out of that interrogation room and obviously he wanted to save what he thought was his mother from being put into prison for him. And so he went along with the details that had been written in. So May 25th, 1975, they've now heard what they wanted to hear, or they've forced Edward to say what they wanted to hear. And they're now ready to take this to the next level and go arrest kids Mm -hmm. who I believe they knew were innocent. They had the green car. They had suspects. Had they even wanted to do just a tiny bit of actual police work, they probably would have landed on the two guys who actually did this. The whole investigation took about a week. There were other suspects that were far more viable in terms of who did this crime. Suspects that were older, I think even had a green car, and that had committed other similar crimes that was not disclosed to the defense counsel before the trial. There were at least six other men who had been simultaneously picked up, arrested, and put into Cuyahoga County jail. But they ignored these other viable avenues and took the easy route with a coerced 12-year-old boy. And at that point, they were, they were only looking for two assailants. So their narrative only named Ricky and Wiley. But you, Kwame, were soon written into the story after the night that they scooped all three of you up. Again, this was May 25th, 1975. The three of you had been out that night together, and Ricky was sleeping over at your house when the cops busted his door down. And when they didn't find Ricky, they dragged his parents out onto the front lawn with guns to their heads. That's exactly what happened at my house. You know, I was sound asleep. And I felt you know, something hit my foot. I looked up cops everywhere, guns pointed. But I didn't think about myself, my safety, or none of that, because I knew that my mother was in the next room. And my mother, all of my life, had suffered from heart trouble, which is what she died from, a massive heart attack in 1990. But I just bolted past the cops and got into the room where my mother was at. There was more cops with guns, and, and I let them have it, man. I was saying everything to them, right? So the, the guy snatched me up. I'll never forget, you know. And he said, Sarge, what you want to do with this one? You know, this one. And he said, take him on down. We'll figure it out later. 
They had arrested me for obstructing police business. And on the way downtown was when they realized that I was 17. So they had to avert going to the county and go over to juvenile. And it was only after that they wrote me into the story. So as the summer of 75 was coming to a close, you, Wiley, and Ricky were all tried separately. You went in front of Judge John Angelata and the chief prosecutor at that time, John T. Corrigan, had been in office since 1956 and also presided over the wrongful conviction of Tony Yaponovich and God knows how many others. But the trial prosecutor was Dominic Del Basso. So what did he present? Basically, what we had is the three guys lived in the neighborhood, were young black men, no physical evidence, no evidence other than that this 12-year-old boy testified and the jury believed him. It's really madness when you think about they were relying on obvious lies. I mean, the kid contradicted himself, right? Vernon initially told police he was on the bus coming home from school when he saw the attack. Then later on, he testified that he had actually gotten off the bus already when he saw the attack. That's pretty pretty hard to have both of those things be true. And then there was a 16-year-old neighborhood girl, Terrence Smith. She testified that she walked into the store just before the attack and saw two men, not boys, two men outside the store. And she went on to say that neither of the two men were any of you three guys. They were not Jackson. They were not the Bridgman brothers. Also, several of Eddie Vernon's classmates testified that he was on the bus with them when they heard the gunshots and that none of them were able to see the robbers. And the defense also presented witnesses who said that you, Kwame, were elsewhere at the time of the crime with your brother and another friend were wrapping up a basketball game. Yeah. And then there was Ann Robinson, back to her. So she right. testified. She was shot in the neck by a bullet that went through the store's front door, but she was unable to identify the robbers, even though she saw them and even though she knew you guys well. She said, I know them boys, backwards, forwards, running away because they would come and work for me and my husband in the store. She said, believe you me, I wanted to get the person responsible for it killing Mr. Franks and shooting me in my neck. But it wasn't there. You know, and that, that says a whole lot because she could have been on that train, you know. Ultimately, her husband started paying into the, the Edward Vernon thing. But Mrs. Robinson, the wife, held fast to the fact that, no, them kids didn't do that. But it was the testimony of Eddie Vernon which carried the day. The jury obviously thought, well, why would this kid make it up, you know? And so... That was the ticket to death row. So he would uh, perpetuate this story, not three, but four times, because Wiley, my brother, got a retrial and went back and they sunk him again and put him in the exact same cell on death row that they had originally put him in. So now we go to September 27th, 1975. Fatal day. Did you hold out any hope at this point? You had seen a lot already, but did you, had any, did you think that they would still see through all of this nonsense? I gave up the ghost when the judge himself, he was instructing the jury. Now listen, because Edward Vernon don't know how to spell certain words and, and can't differentiate east from west, doesn't mean he's a liar. Doesn't mean that when he says that him, and he pointed to me, is guilty. You see? So, in my mind, he had already convinced that jury that I was fucking guilty, you know? So when they came in, them looked up, they all looked down, you know? The women was holding their little skirt tails, and you know how they do. And I said, okay, here we go. 
you know, yeah. And when I came back to the reality of what was happening to me, I heard him say, until you are dead. That's all I fucking heard. Until you are dead. This podcast is brought to you by Ohio Justice and Policy Center, a nonprofit law firm that seeks justice for people directly impacted by Ohio's criminal legal system. OJPC provides free legal services to currently and formerly incarcerated people. Through its Beyond Guilt project, OJPC works to free overpunished people who have rehabilitated themselves. OJPC's second chance clinics help individuals with criminal records remove barriers to employment and housing. OJPC's Human Rights in Prison Project represents people who face denial of medical care. In its 25-year history, OJPC has worked at the policy level and won numerous victories in Ohio, including ending juvenile life without parole and exempting seriously mentally ill people from the death penalty. To learn more about Ohio Justice and Policy Center and how you can support its mission, visit ohiojpc.org. That's O-H-I-O-J-P-C.org. Ohio Justice and Policy Center. We don't write people off. So that morning, you know, the ride, as they call it, they came and, and got me and they give me A143953. Something that is embedded in me, I'll never forget. Once I actually got to death row, it became one cell all day every day they stripped me oh man started calling me girl little little sweetie and all that making me bend over and spread my butt cheeks all that stuff i never you know know nothing about but then here's one that i'll never forget either jason before we go to my cell we go to the end of the range and i got introduced i actually saw the chair it's a hot date gonna be waiting on you boy she gonna ride you good I mean, the idea that your mom lost two of her babies that were kidnapped by the police and then planned to be executed by the state is a is a type of pain that I don't think anybody who's not experienced it could ever even begin to imagine. And that that is just a tragedy on a tragedy. But and here you were on death row down the hall from your own brother. Like you, you could were you guys able to see each other or just hear each other? Or how how did that even work? You know, everybody's hollering, screaming, so we could do that. We pass notes and this and that. But one hour out of the 24 hours that we weren't in the cell, and that hour, of course, you got to go take a shower and walk up and down the range and, you know, pass messages for guys. So we got, you know, that little time to see each other and passing on the range like that, as well as Ricky. And luckily, miraculously, for you, Wiley, Ricky, and all the other guys on Ohio Death Row, a critically important 1978 Supreme Court decision came along. Right. So this was that that famous Sandra Lockett case where she fought against the constitutionality of how everyone was sentenced. That particular time, if you got premeditated murder, you got sentenced to, to die. Every Every judge across the state was using the same application. She filed and she won. And that released everyone that had been previously sentenced to die. 
Right. This case challenged what factors could be considered by the judge or jury when weighing whether or not to impose the death penalty. And so what they found unconstitutional in layman's terms, the state had the ability to list unlimited reasons why the death penalty should be applied in your case, but there was a very small number of mitigating factors that were allowed to be presented by the defense. The U.S. Supreme Court struck down the Ohio death penalty law as they did in other jurisdictions, and then there was a wave of new death penalty statutes that came in where there was more attention to how a jury would consider the aggravated circumstances versus mitigating factors. So they got off a death row and went into general population. Right. So each of you were resentenced to life sentences with the possibility for parole. That happened in August of 78. But yeah, there was an exception there. The exception was my brother, because this was the time that he had went back for the new trial. Right. Your brother was granted a new trial, reconvicted and sent back to death row only to await the paperwork that would see him into general population with the same sentence as the rest of you a year or so later. And Edward Vernon, 15 years old at the time, had testified for a fourth time at that new trial. But I understand that his resolve began to waver after that, as it had at the lineup before they threatened to put his sick mother in prison. As time went on, he would go and try to recant his story, always to the same cops, always to the same two cops that had him hooked up in that interrogation room in the first place. Yeah, that was detectives Eugene Turpe and James Farmer. And of course, they would pat him on his back and soothe it over. And uh, long came his life where he started getting into trouble and get a prison sentence himself. And I would imagine that's long about the time that he stopped, you know, trying to be helpful in the sense of, you know, telling the truth. Which unfortunately kept that truth hidden for far too long. And in the meantime, you were all in general population now and eventually eligible for parole. So you built a solid record inside. I was very active in sports. I can really box. But one of the things that I did at Lucasville more than anything was barber. But I got out of Lucasville. I went to Lima Correctional Institution in 1984 because Lima had transitioned from being the state hospital. So so half of the joint was still medicated. It was nothing there for it. it was no recreation. Most of all, it was no school. And so that's where I, I excelled. Had a few co-hosts, there's about nine of us actually. And we took that, that proposition to the administration. And the guy, his name is David Nail, the man that would become the principal of the school. And uh, we opened the school and I became administrative clerk. And I did that until I was actually paroled from Richland Correctional Institution in 2003, which is very hard to do from somebody to come from death row doing a life sentence and then go to the parole board. Just the mere fact that I arbitrated education in that school to so many men, I can't, I, thousands of men got at least, at least a GED while I was running because I wouldn't let them not get it. But now, mind you, I had got a five-year and then a 10-year continuance. So it ain't like I just walked to it. I, I was doing time, but I was also doing something constructive, and that was education. So even though this was parole and not exoneration, tell us about your newfound freedom in 2003. Ah, great. The very first day was like I was floating to make it even sweeter. You know, months later, I would meet the greatest thing that ever happened to me, which was my wife, LaShawn Ajamu. 
you know, I married her a year after I got out of prison. That's beautiful. Now that you are out, you are on a mission to clear all of your names and free Wiley and Ricky from prison. And Wiley had actually been paroled the year before, but was soon sent back because of none other than Eddie Vernon. Wiley was at the city mission while he was on parole and run, runs into Eddie, who was working there as a, I guess, a security guard. They exchanged some words, no threats or anything like that. He says, man, why don't you do something about it? You know, go to the authorities. And he says, ah, you know, I, uh, I'm afraid they're going to prosecute me for perjury and all this stuff. And somehow that conversation got to the parole board and they looked at it as a guy on parole intimidating a witness from his crime. So they flopped him and sent him back until 2014 when he was exonerated. Jesus Christ. So. Eddie Vernon held on to his guilty secret for another 11 or 12 long years, right? And by now, you reached out to Terry for help. I remember this talk. He said, we need to some kind of way put more light on the subject, you know. And he told me about this kid, 24-year-old kid named Cal Swenson, who wrote for the Cleveland Scene magazine. So when I met with this kid, I came back to tell my wife, like, well, damn, I've been in jail long. This cat been alive. But man, listen, Cal went into that neighborhood. And to this day, I don't know how he retrieved the information that he did. But he came back to me talking about things that I'd never heard of. You know, like, for instance, the situation with Edward and his mother and, and just on and on and on, you know. And so when about time we circle back around to Terry, you ever see the, the, the picture of the snowball coming down that hill? It just started getting bigger. And and the next thing I know, my wife worked at a, a spot over here in the West Side, and one of the ladies worked there with her, went to the same church with Edward Vernon. And so she told my wife, and my wife told me, and I reached out to the pastor. So he did what I guess anybody would do. He said, well, let me check into this, and I'll get back to you, you know? And so I tell Kyle, man, no go, you know? So Kyle, get on him. So now this is two people calling him, and this is making him like, wow, in the meantime, Edward Vernon had a nervous breakdown. He's in the hospital. And so his pastor goes to see him. I remember this scene at the hospital with the pastor. And he said to Eddie, is there something that you want to tell me? You're in the hospital. You know, obviously, we hope everything works out. But is there something on your mind you want to get off your chest? And he then breaks down, sobbing, and basically admits that he had lied in the trial, and he put three innocent men in prison. And, you know, the Innocence Project was representing Ricky Jackson. They sent over somebody to get an affidavit, which was the foundation for the motion for a new trial, which then took place in November of 2014. At the hearing before Judge McMonagall, Eddie took the stand and was an incredible witness. The prosecutors tried to impeach him, cross-examine him, and he deflected any challenge. And there was a break in the hearing, and the prosecutors came in and they said, Judge, we concede that he should get a new trial. And then in the same hearing, they said they're dismissing the murder indictments. Right. I understand that the prosecutor in 2014, Timothy McGinty, was not an unreasonable man. 
That was a different prosecutor than we have now. Now we have a prosecutor who doesn't believe in wrongful incarceration. He doesn't believe that people should get compensation. But the one that we had back in 2014 saw that there was no evidence that they were the perpetrators. So Ricky actually called me that day that he got exonerated, the very moment. Uh, my wife, brakes that went bad on her truck. And so a friend of mine and I was changing the brakes. And I'm up under the car, and my phone rang, so I, you know, put it on speaker. And uh, you have a collect call, you know, that's what they said. So Ricky, so, so what's going on, brother? You know, and, and he's almost incoherent, you know, because he's so, he's so ecstatic, you know. And I said, what? He said, I, I said, I'm free. It's all over. You know, he's break down and start crying. I said, what the fuck you say? You know, he said, man, it's all over. God damn, you hear me? You know, and uh, man, I almost knocked the damn car down. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Ricky was on a Wednesday. We didn't want Wiley to spend even one day more than he had to. And we were able to get before the judge on Friday, and Wiley was exonerated. And I'll never forget when Wiley comes out of the jail doors into the lobby, these two guys, the moment that they hugged was one of the most emotional and gratifying moments of my life as a lawyer. I'm sure that moment is etched in your mind and your soul as well. Without a doubt. And so, Ricky was exonerated, then two days, Wiley, and then a month later, we were able to get Kwame exonerated. But uh, thinking about both uh, uh, my brother Wiley and Ricky Jackson, having spent 39 years, these guys had lost so much time. When I got out of prison, again, parole, I had an 11-year run. No matter how fucked up it was, I still had an 11-year life without him, you know? And to this day, I feel kind of bad about that, you know? 
I had I had a, a wife, went through seven cars, right? So as a man, as a human being, as a person, I wasn't able to make that equal. And I always feel something there, you know. Kind of like a survivor's guilt. Right. And so even though no amount of money could ever replace what you all lost, you were all at least finally eligible for state compensation. You also won your civil suits against the city and the estates of the detectives, but then life took a dire turn again. Your brother Wiley had lung cancer, and if that wasn't enough, another tragedy struck. He had an accident, and it had an auto accident, and it cost someone's life. He was already in bad shape in and out of the hospital. He actually had an oxygen tank in the car with him. Prior to his death, he would, like, have coughing spells and pass out. And so I believe that that's what happened to him on the night in question. He was driving his car late at night, rode by a construction site, and he ended up hitting two guys and rode for another four miles before, you know, a car come to a stop. One of the guys that he hit passed away. Oh, God. And the very next year, he was gone. Wow. That's so much. It's just too much. And I'm so sorry. And our condolences, of course, to the family of that construction worker as well. So I guess if there's a silver lining to this story, it's that you two were there for each other in prison and did have a number of years of freedom together before his passing. And during that time, all three of you guys, as well as your wife, LaShawn, have been quite active in a movement that is near and dear to my heart, which is death penalty abolition. My wife is a member of OSI, which is Ohioans to Stop Executions, um, 1997-98, I think it was. Her brother was murdered. And so she is also a family victims member. She do a lot of advocating for people having family members being murdered and how the system leaves them. And I am very active with their organization, OSI, as there is with my organization, Witness to Innocence. I'm the chairman of Witness the Innocence. All of our board, with the exception of the two volunteers, are death row exonerees. And we have been key in the 21 states that have abolished or stopped using capital punishment in the United States. And then there's also what we're doing here to stop capital punishment in the state of Ohio. Let me just read you something here from the Death Penalty Information Center. This is a quote. In February 2021, a special report, the innocence epidemic found that Cuyahoga ranked second among U.S. counties, tied with Philadelphia. We know how bad that is. That's me talking now. But back to the quote, for the most exonerations of death row prisoners who have been wrongfully convicted. All of those wrongful convictions involve police or prosecutorial misconduct or both. Brian Stevenson estimates that about 10% of people on death row are innocent. And of course, most of those people end up being executed. So it's fair to say that we execute innocent people in this country about one out of every 10. Now, I think it's higher. So my question is, for anyone who still believes in the death penalty, are you okay with executing innocent people? That's what I'm going to leave our audience with is I continue to hope that Ohio soon joins the states who have seen the wrong of having the option of capital punishment. So that said, we're going to be linking in the bio to the organizations that you mentioned, Ohioans to Stop Executions or OTSE, O-T-S-E, and of course, Witness to Innocence. Another thing I want to shout out for listeners is Ricky's movie. This is a mind-blowing piece of film. It's called Lovely Jackson. I can't stop thinking about it. It's amazing. So we're going to have that linked in the bio as well. And one last thing. Terry, I understand you wrote a book. The name of the book is... Trying Times. Trying Times, A Lawyer's 50-Year Struggle Fighting for Rights in a World of Wrongs. It goes back to the late 60s, early 70s, up until 2021. It's, it's really about inspiring younger activists and lawyers 
to take up the fight for people's rights. Well, I'll be linking that in the bio as well and grabbing a copy myself. So now we've come to my favorite part of the show. Of course, it's called Closing Arguments. And this works very simply. First of all, I'm going to thank you guys, Terry Gilbert and Kwame Ajamu, for being here and courageously sharing your story. So here's how it works. I'm going to turn my microphone off for closing arguments, kick back in my chair, and just listen to anything else you guys want to share with me and our incredible audience. Terry, let's start with you, and then Kwame will take us off into the sunset. The movement has grown against wrongful imprisonment. It's important for people to be aware that the system is flawed, that trials are not the end of justice, that things go wrong, and People need to understand the nature of the criminal system and fight for what is a better avenue to achieve justice. Also, I just want to make a note that I don't even know if Kwame knows this. I mean, this is the first public mention of it, but we are starting a wrongful conviction clinic at Cleveland State University Law School in the fall. The Ohio Innocence Project has done a great job and they're located in Cincinnati, and we need one in our community. I just want to say that with Terry Gilbert, the Innocence Project, and all of the men and women who stand in force to protect those who are downtrodden and who have been subjugated and arbitrarily and capriciously put in prison for absolutely no reason, I am one who will stand in every corner that the fight is going on against capital punishment, wrongful incarceration, and the cohorts which institute that policy. So I say to you, my brother, thank you so much. Thank you for having us today. And I want to remind the country that we are survivors and that just like Terry Gilbert, I will be here tomorrow to march. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I want to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Lila Robinson, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 